Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss big, important topics by presenting just the facts and none of the unneeded opinion and bias. I'm Lauren Seppard, here with my co-host, Allie Dagnus, and boy, do we have a jam-packed science show for you today. We have two awesome guests with us. Up first is Varujan Gorjan, a research astronomer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he's here to explain outer space to Allie and I like we are third graders, and I know that's the level that I personally need, so I'm excited about that. Then we will speak with Carl Zimmer, who's an award-winning New York Times columnist and the author of 14 books about science, including his newest, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. He will talk to us about the fascinating Castle Bravo nuclear bomb test from the 1950s. So up first is NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory astronomer Varujan Gorjan. Varujan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, we've been very much looking forward to this episode. Uh, neither one of us are scientists, so you're going to have to explain the entire universe to us today in, I don't know, 45 minutes. Can you do that? Uh, no, I guess that's the shortest <laughs> episode ever. So well, thanks for having me. Thank Bye. you so much yeah, for thanks joining for us today. <laughs> this was well, let's fun. Start. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start before we get to discussing some of the work that you do and explaining some of these big scientific concepts to us. Can we start at the beginning and talk about how you fell in love with science all the way back when you were young? Yeah, it's one of those strange things that um, my love of science, but most specifically space in particular, is it's just in those mists of memory when you're so young, because I know I love two things that I was when I was very, very young. I loved space and I loved science fiction movies. So, did I love science fiction movies because I loved space or did I love space because I loved science fiction movies? It's very hard to, to do that. I mean, I, as a kid, I was watching Star Trek and Space 1999 and a show called UFO and Spaceship Orion. And, and, and that's actually a German show, which most people wouldn't probably know. But, uh, but at the same time, I remember um, we were taking a family trip to, the, to London and my mom took me to the London Planetarium. I don't remember what the show was, but I remember bouncing off the walls when we came out. It was it was just so exciting about that. So it's this interconnectedness between sort of the fiction connected with space and what the reality of exploring space that's always been there. So I can't tell you exactly when it started, but I do know that it started very young. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the, the planetarium. You mentioned being a Trekkie. I, I've seen that in some of your previous interviews. Uh what, was there a particular movie, I mean, besides the TV shows, was there a particular movie early on where that really got you jazzed about science or about space? Uh, in terms of movies, it would have to be the original Star Wars when it came out in 1977. I mean, again, I was a fan already of science fiction TV shows and I'd watched various movies, but there was just this sort of seminal moment of sitting in the movie theater and watching Star Wars unfold Again, it's a space fantasy. It's not even science fiction because there's not even pretending to be that. You have wizards and, you know, <laughs> magic is effectively in, in a different context. But it was still this idea of exploration, of being in a different, being in space and exploring these worlds and these, all of these things. And I, that 
is definitely one of the key moments of my life in terms of this is what I love. But even at that point, I certainly already wanted to be an astronaut. So that was, again, it's this interconnectedness. It wasn't, and nothing was in, in isolation, but definitively seeing Star Wars in the movie theater was a turning point. <laughs> so it, it, again, it's, it's a little bit interconnected in, 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 but for me, I was just lucky enough because, I mean, I'm Armenian. I was born in Iran. We were visiting the United States in 1977 when I saw Star Wars. So it was just fortuitous coincidence that that happened. And, um, and I couldn't wait until I could go back to Iran and then have it be dubbed in Farsi for me to see it because that's how I saw all these other shows. They were dubbed in Farsi and that's how I saw them. But the Islamic revolution happened before then. So I never got to see it. And then we had to leave and came to the U S in, um, uh, to reside starting in 1979. And I guess I'm asking because I really want to know, did you ever dress up as any of the characters? And when you got to <laughs> oh, Caltech, absolutely. were you so oh. excited? Like, these are my people, you know, and you would, you were like, there's an Ewok at a party. And you're like, yeah, I want to talk about whether that was a good idea. Like, were, were you yeah. so excited? <laughs> and so I actually have both a Han Solo costume and I also have a Luke Skywalker from The Empire Strikes Back costume with the Yoda in the backpack. Oh, <laughs> so. that is so cool. When so, yeah. I, I have I have so much. I'm so, Lawrence, just give me just two more, qu- just tiny, tiny little questions. I know. I'll, no- I'll give you one more because we, we, we need <laughs> to get know. beyond Trekkies and Star Wars. But go ahead. I can't. When you met your <laughs> wife, um, was this was this something that brought you together or was this something that you had to broach very Drove carefully? you apart. No, not obviously <laughs> no. not drove them apart. They got yeah. married. We're but, still married. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, but was this something was, you know, was she like, well, guess what? I happen to have a Princess Leia costume and you were like, let's get married. And that's the glue that, that has kept you together. No, here's the interesting thing about that. As much as I love this, that was not one of my deal breakers. I just wanted somebody who was passionate about something. I didn't want it necessarily to be about exactly the same things as, that I was. And she, we, so there's, there's sort of two sides to that. There's, uh, so she is not a Star Wars fan in that sense. She likes the movies and so on. She has her own uh, uh, passions. Uh, she came from a theater background, so she was much more for various different kinds of theater and, and, uh, and, and uh, playwrights and so on, which is great because then I've been exposed to more of that, which I also love as well. But, uh, uh, but we did meet online on a dating website called sweetongeeks.com. <laughs> So, so she felt she was a theater geek. I was a, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, sci-fi geek. But then that being that kind of a nerd geek definitely is something that has connected us. And so, so and, but then what's interesting is that for our wedding, um, she was the one who suggested that, you know, we should do something more Star Warsy. I was like, well, I don't want to sort of stick my Star Warsy thing into our wedding. She was, no, 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 we should do something like that. And so we thought about it and we came up with, you know, the in the military they have these sword salute ones. The couple is mm-hmm. married, and so we had a lightsaber salute with our ushers. <gasps> so. <laughs> oh, that's the coolest thing in the entire world! I love that so much. That's awesome. Oh my gosh! If you invent a wayback machine, will you invite me to your wedding? <laughs> because I I just want to see that. That's okay. the neatest thing. I'll send you a picture. <laughs> All right. So you made the most of your location. So can you tell us how you made your way to Caltech and then UCLA and then eventually to the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. 
Right. So it's, it's interesting because growing up to, I literally grew up ne- next to Junk Propulsion Laboratory. So it's, I was very close, but they had all these events around JPL. And in particular, in the 80s, one of the big things coming out of JPL were the Voyager missions, which suddenly you had all of these images of, you know, when, when there were much smaller planets or Saturn, the rings sort of looks the best telescopes on the ground to, could give you a sense of what they were. But the Voyager missions just completely and utterly changed our view of that. And so what they would have is live downlinks of the data that was coming in from Voyager projected in an auditorium at Caltech. So then, you know, I, I got my dad to bring me over so that we, and then this was very slow. This is not an exciting kind of, you know, the way we get the Mars pictures being at so much higher resolution, the data downlinks are a lot better. But these are, much, the further away you go, the slower the rate of downlink is. And, and this is even, you know, for older technology, but it was still, you know, line by line, these, you know, images of the moons or, you know, of the planet were coming through. And so, uh, even though I don't do planetary astronomy, but it was still one of these things that, you know, you're there at a moment in history, you know, examining some, seeing something that few have, and, and that was the case. It was truly live. The scientists were literally sitting at JPL seeing the exact same feed we were seeing. It wasn't like, oh, let's sort of hand this off to, you know, people after we finished with them. No, no, it was that sense of being there certainly, you know, kept my excitement going. The idea of being an astronaut was there. And thanks to that Odyssey magazine article, I realized that to become an astronaut at the time, particularly it was for the shuttle program, you could be sort of, you have two paths. One is the pilot path, which is the better known ones that you become a pilot, you know, in Air Force, Marines, Navy. Um, and you you do a lot of, you know, you, you have to have certain thousands of hours of high performance jet flying experience. So they don't say you have to be in the military. They just say you have to have 10,000 hours of high performance jet flying experience which is where you're going to get that, essentially. Uh, but the other end of it is that it's, um, but the other type was the mission specialist, which is you're a specialist. So you could be anybody you could, in, in terms of these critical fields of medicine, engineering, or science. And I was like, that's me. That's I'm a mission specialist in science. What do I love? Science of space, astronomy. So this is what I have to pursue. And I sort of looked around and I'm like, okay, so what's a really good school for astronomy? Caltech was one of the critical places in the history of astronomy. So I was like, that's where I want to go. Worked hard, you know, did as well as I could in my classes um, and managed, you know, I, I was admitted there. And so I was an undergraduate, did my undergraduate there. And so again, got exposed to a lot more of the, you know, the actual practical daily astronomy. I was, I was able to do research with uh, several, you know, major uh, professors at the time uh, who are still around. And, and uh, um, so I did research with uh, Dr. George Jorgovsky, who, who's uh, working there. But I also did my first research project was with a professor named Dr. Anthony Reedhead. What's interesting about that, the reason I'm mentioning is that over the years, I have collaborated and worked with him now as a professional astronomer. And I just was a co-author uh, on a paper by Dr. Reedhead uh, recently. So this this long circle of coming back and working with, you know, the people that, who trained me. And so, um, and so, uh, and also. You can't boss me around anymore, Dr. Reedhead. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but that's the thing to be, to become a, a colleague. And, and one of the other uh, people that I worked with when I was working with Dr. Reedhead, Dr. Charles Lawrence, he's actually at JPL. He's a sort of, <laughs> he is sort of my boss in that sense. And so it's one of those things where, um, again, it was a great decision. It was a critical decision that, you know, allowed me to have a path 
that I knew the, the people who were very, you know, making an impact in the field. And again, it's not so much that it was uniquely necessarily Caltech, but it was the idea that I was able to go and work with them. And in any field, as you're working, the younger you are and you sort of connect with people, you get a sense of what that field is like. You build the relationships and over the years, you know, you can come back to that. And, and I don't think it's unique to astronomy or science. And I think any of your listeners should sort of be aware of that, you know, and, and I wasn't aware of it as much. And this is, you know, one of those you know, hindsight kind of things, but that, you know, even as an undergraduate, you know, you are building these relationships and, you know, and so it's important that not only are you learning from them, but you're also becoming a part of this, you know, community and if you like the community, not all communities are, you know, equal. But in this case, this community was, you know, I enjoyed being there. I was welcomed. And so I was very happy to continue and to go on to my PhD at UCLA, which, again, broadened my horizons even more, worked with more people, did more kinds of science. Okay. So I've seen you do some interviews online and you are very good at um, explaining really complicated scientific concepts in a really easy to understand way for the general public. So tell us about black holes in a way that even Lawrence Eppard could understand. And for those who may not you know, know what black holes are, fundamentally, I mean, it is a very um, interesting consequence of Einstein's theory of uh, general relativity, which even Einstein initially didn't think would be possible. It's just that as you, mass has gravity. So the further you are from, you know, something that has mass, the less pull of gravity that you feel. Um, but the idea is that what happens when you put more and more and more mass in a smaller and smaller volume? And at some point, and this had been speculated on before, um, there's going to be a point where you're getting the pull of gravity from all of that mass. And there will be a point where to escape that, you have to have the speed of light or greater. And again, this is a combination, not just of the mass, but of how close you are to the mass. That is, the moon is certainly in orbit around the earth, but it feels less of the gravitational pull of the earth than we do. So if you're at the radius of the moon's orbit and you want to leave the earth's gravitational attraction, it's a lot easier than it is to leave the gravitational attraction of the earth when you're standing on the earth. But that's similarly. So you have a lot of mass, but when you have a lot of mass, it actually gets very compressed. So you can actually get very close to all of that mass. And so when you have all of this mass concentrated in a very small volume, that means you can get very close to it. And at some point, the escape velocity becomes the speed of light, that is. And you can't go faster than the speed of light. It's not simply a speed limit. It's just a consequence of how the physics works. And so if you can't go faster than the speed of light, then no light can escape it. Hence, that's the black part of the black hole. The whole part has a lot more to do with our everyday kind of you know, envisioning that as you fall into a hole, that's what you envision. But it's a, it's a bit of a misnomer in the sense because a hole is the lack of something. If you if you have a hole in your garden and your foot falls in it, it's because there's, there's something was missing there. Black hole is just the opposite. There's a lot of stuff there. It's all <laughs> compressed into this enormous amount of stuff in this very tiny volume such that this, you know, escape velocity is the speed of light. And so it's a bit of a misnomer, but that's what the black hole is. But then we have developed a lot of jargon about it. Um, and that's one of the things, main things that I study, because we think that there are these, not just black holes, but supermassive black holes that are at the centers of galaxies that likely had a connection sort of a, to galaxies forming. So the galaxies are the hundreds of billions of stars that, you know, are um, Milky Way is made of. It's uh, 
people often mistake galaxy and solar system as a common. So solar system is a star and the planets around it. A galaxy is hundreds of billions of those stars with planets around it, you know, so gravitationally bound. But those galaxies tend to have, as far as we can tell, all of them have a supermassive black hole at their centers. So uh, you're part of a really interesting program that I want to talk about in a moment uh, where you help um, science teachers across the country learn about the scientific process and do science and teach science. But before we get to that, I wonder if you could do for the scientific method and the scientific process of doing science what you just did for black holes, which is, could you tell us in, in a layperson's terminology, how does the scientific process work and why should we trust the facts that it produces? For most of history, what we knew was based on primarily our experience, but without sort of other empirical evidence, the idea of empiricism, the idea that there's something that's separate than your own personal experience was really not the way people even on their daily lives or on a larger scale ever thought about interacting with the world. Um, and so you get over the past few hundred years, you get this idea of empiricism. That is, it's not just a subjective experience that there are things in the world that are subject to experimentation. That is, you, have, you can have an empirical way. That is, you can, if I do it, it's not just my subjective experience. Uh, but then there are many different experiments that can be done. And people, these scientific journals initially came out and, and said, okay, I did this experiment and this is what I observed that happened. And so in terms of the scientific process is that you see something that's happening. And science has a fundamental assumption. Okay, this is not provable. This is sort of the, the basis upon which science is based is that there is a physical universe that exists outside of ourselves. And by observing it, we can understand how it works. This is not a sort of, this is an assumption we have to make. Are there things beyond that, that if it's not observable, it's still real? Could be, but it's outside of the realm of science. Science is a very limited approach. If it's not observable, if it's not subject to observations, it's outside of science. Okay, that's not within our realm. That's why you know, we can't say anything about religion. We can say it's not, a, you know, we can't do the burning bush experiment. Therefore, it's not within the realm of science, but that's separate from it. If you need, if you have faith, fine. But within science, it has to be observable and repeatable. That is, if I do the experiment, somebody else has to be able to do the same experiment and get the same results. And it's your responsibility to describe how you did it so they can do it as well, right? Exactly. And right. it doesn't mean I'm right. That is, I may have made a mistake. And then if I'm describing how I did it, somebody else doesn't and goes, I'm not getting the same results. And we go, why? Did somebody make a mistake? Is, the, is our understanding of the fundamental physics or chemistry of it? Is, you know, so it's a matter of doing that. But you also have to be careful that is, you have to have something what, what, which is, um, there's a philosopher of science named Kuhn who came up with the idea of the critical part of science is falsifiability. That is, there, whatever statement you're making has to be able to be shown that it is wrong. Okay. Now, science is not about showing things that are right. Like I said, we can get better and better with our observations and get better accuracy and precision and so many things. But at the end of the day, I can't say with absolute 100% certainty that this is 
the right answer. It's very close to it probably or something like that. But it, uh, but it has to be falsifiable. That is, somebody else has to be, there has to be an experiment that you can do that will show that it can be wrong. So those are the kinds of things is that the universe has certain physical laws that apply everywhere and are observable. And that's sort of the first assumption that you're going with. And then you're, whenever you're trying to understand how the universe works, you put up your put out your hypothesis based on your observations, but then that sort of cyclically gets certainly redone. But at the end of the day, if your final hypothesis is unfalsifiable, that is, you can't do any, it's not subject to an experiment that will show it to be wrong, then it's outside of the realm of science. Again. So fundamentally, that's a critical thing that we need, which oftentimes people are, the, the sort of two critical parts that they miss is that if somebody makes a positive statement about how something is, it's their job, the burden of proof is on them to show that that's the case until it sort of becomes accepted, at which point then the next person comes and says, we have, this is different Then again, it's always their job to show that that's the case, that it's not your job to constantly say, no, that's wrong. What is your positive proof that that's or evidence that that's the case? It's not really proof, it's just evidence. But then at the end of the day, it has to be falsifiable. If it's not falsifiable, it's not science. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, teacher archive research program that you're a part of? And in particular, I think there's something really interesting that you've said in previous interviews, which is many science teachers learn how to teach the science and the results of science, but not how to do science itself. And I actually think that speaks to something much larger in our society, which is the need to really experientially be a part of that process early on see how it works. And I, I think that's a much better education, at least a much better literacy. So could you talk about the program specifically, but also that sort of larger idea of being exposed to the process and, and, and the learning that takes place there? So, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so the program is called the NASA IPAC Teacher Archive Research Program. IPAC is a center at Caltech that houses a lot of infrared astronomy data. Uh, and, and we continue to do uh, various different kinds of uh, work for uh, archiving work for NASA, uh, but and, and various different mission work for NASA as well. But the idea came out actually originally from the National Optical Astronomy Observatories, um, where they had in instituted this method of getting teachers in the summers to work with astronomers there. And then um, NASA came and said, okay, all major missions should have an education and public outreach component. And at uh, IPAC, where we were running the Spitzer Space Telescope, uh, we said, okay, well, we have this money. What are we going to do with it in terms of education and public outreach? And we saw what the, the uh, national observatories had done. And we said, let's duplicate that. And in particular, though, the process, we expanded it a little bit more with the idea being that, first of all, high school teachers have the biggest foot footprint in terms of affecting people. Any individual outreach scientist for a NASA mission talks can talk to so many people, but that's a very shallow penetration in terms of, I mean, not that it shouldn't be done, but it's, it's, it's you know, our footprint is relatively small we, in terms, particularly in the depth of understanding. And again, this is not a criticism of the teachers. This the, really, I mean, these teachers are incredibly devoted, but it was this, this training that we had come to where they were simply passing on knowledge. And in particular for science, not that it doesn't apply for others, but in particular for science, science is something that you do 
Unfortunately, the way it was structured in terms of education was that science is information that gets passed on. Now, there's a buildup of basic knowledge that needs to get passed on. But the critical part was you need to be able to understand why we have that critical piece of knowledge, why that base had come about, why I was talking about how we came to these conclusions, what, and, and again, none of that is above reproach in the sense that all of it should, you know, is, should be subject to experimentation as we go forward. That's, that's the way it is. Uh, things that have, we've experimented more on, I would say, you know, there's less reproach there than there's other things more. That's fine, but that's how we do it. And so what we decided to do, and in particular, astronomy is very well suited for this, is that we would select from applicants, you know, teachers who wanted to participate in doing astronomy research with NASA astronomers, me being one of them, uh, we would first take them to an astronomy conference. And that's the critical difference is that that's where we exchange information. That's where the new stuff is happening. That's where, that's where also this, the fact that we have colleagues in our interactions, all of these things feed into science. It's not just this one aspect uh, of just do the experiment. Uh, it's, you know, creating the community and people who you will feel comfortable, you know, talking about it and people who will feel comfortable criticizing you so that you know that, you know, well, did you think about this? And you don't want it just to be acrimonious all the time. In fact, most of the time it isn't. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Oh, thanks for mentioning that. That's why we give talks at these conferences because at the talk, somebody can ask a question or afterward can approach you. It's like, you know, did you notice so-and-so's paper about something similar that you did? Oh, I missed that. Or, you know, did you know so-and-so's paper? Yes, I just talked to them the other day. And this is the difference between what they did and what I did and why we're getting different answers, which they're both right. Or, or, or they agree that, you know, theirs is a little bit outdated. Ours is bad. All of that is happening at a conference. And so we take the teachers to the conference to see how this is done. We co I come up with a research project, which is uses archival data. So originally we were actually getting... Uh, some time on uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope to do the science, but right now it's mostly archival data, and you know we're using archival data. And there's you know, massive the, the amount of archives that NASA has right now are huge, um, and so the critical part of it is that they see sort of we have them write a proposal. That's the other thing that they you know most of the time have not done it, and even if they have like done summer research as an intern, you are coming in at a research project in the middle of it or some critical component of it, you're not starting it. So the critical part is we want them to see that you have to write a proposal. Now, the proposal isn't going to get rejected, but they need to see that process and that the proposal gets reviewed and you get some feedback on that and saying, you know, what about this? What about that? And so we have them write the proposal and then they get their reviews back again. They're not going to get rejected like most <laughs> other proposals in most of the disciplines, uh, but still you, you move forward and, um, then we get the, we have them come out to Caltech we, uh, at IPAC and they get the data. We show them how to analyze the data. Again, we're picking things that are, you know, they can have tools to more easily analyze. And you can, again, Excel is, a, you know, it's a spreadsheet program, but a lot of its data is numbers. So we can use Excel and we have a few other tools that we can help them with, which are um, professional tools, but then don't involve them doing, you know, too much programming or having, you know, changing their computers very much because that's one of the things that we've learned is, uh, the computer access that they have, whatever the laptops or whatever, are very restricted under their school district's um, requirements, understandably so, but still that makes it a little bit more difficult. So it has to, it limits the kinds of tools that we can have them use. But then even better, what we want them to do is bring their students along. Not a lot of students, but just a few students because But they, when they bring the students, they also see how the students are experiencing the same thing they're experiencing. 
simultaneously. And so that helps them understand how to then transfer this concept, not that specific project necessarily, but to transfer that concept to their students over time about any of the science topics. So then eventually, once we finish that, then we have them go back to the American Astronomical Society Conference and present the science result in a science session in what's called a poster presentation. Posters are exactly what you think. It's a giant poster. But on that is the title, your abstract, which is a brief description of what the results are. And then you stand by your poster, and there are times during the conference where it's poster time. Everybody goes out in these giant halls with lots of posters and everybody's essentially peddling their science wares. Uh, and so uh, they look at it and you know, come and ask you questions. And But right now they're coming and asking questions from the teachers and their students. I'm not necessarily there. They're, they should be able to defend what they've done in a scientific context. And by the way, saying I don't know is not a bad answer, but it's something that they can, you know, come back to me and said, they asked me this and I didn't know what, what what the question was or how to answer that. And it's like, oh, okay. More often than I'm like, well, yeah, this we didn't get into that depth and this is what it would be. Or sometimes they're like, wow, I didn't even think of that. So once that cycle is finished and what we hope and, and we've gotten feedback from our uh, high school uh, teachers who participated is that by changing their view of how science is done and having done science, it has fundamentally altered how they teach science, even though they haven't changed the text, they haven't changed necessarily uh, some of the labs that they're doing. Sometimes they do, certainly they, they, they can change things a lot and they try and get more like live data kind of thing, analysis in the classroom. But I think that's the critical part. And um, we're hoping others do this in other realms of science. And in particular, eventually, hopefully, this winds up being in terms of how teachers are trained, because fundamentally, I think that's the critical part is for science, it's about the doing of it, not just, and again, some of them is we've, what we've done is reproduce famous experiments. That's fine. That's sort of the first step. But how is it, you know, at that cutting edge, how is it when you're trying to come up with something new? And that's what we're trying to relate to them is the current daily work of science and what that's like. And how that translates into the classroom and knowing what we know about science. That is an excellent way to teach. And I just want to applaud you. (laughs) I was going to say, as excited as as you are about astronomy, you sound even more excited about teaching teachers to teach science. I mean, that is... That is a miracle in itself. Like, you just... It, it honestly is so heartening just to see your level of energy about just the the contagion of your enthusiasm for teaching is I just uh, in all seriousness, that was fantastic. That oh, just really was, it was well, now, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm blushing. So. <laughs> no, that was wonderful. Yeah. No, no. But that, I mean, to me, it's it's I, I would like to say that this was something that I developed, but I suspect that's genetic. <laughs> My grandmother was a teacher. My mother was a teacher. My wife is a teacher. <laughs> so and, um, so I, I have a great affinity, both in terms of my lineage and my choices of who to marry in terms of people who love to teach. Uh, those few teachers who were really good made such an impression on me. And this is the thing that always gets me is whenever I talk about my good teachers, almost invariably everybody thinks it's like, Oh, it was just an easy class or they made the class easy, Hmm. which is the strangest thing because the best teachers that I had 
were literally the hardest classes and the most work that I ever did. But it was a great feedback loop of, wow, this is hard. And the teacher did their best to explain it, but then I would do it and I would fail. And then I'd do it again and it wouldn't work. And then I'd do it again and then it would and I would understand it and they would help me along in this process. This, uh, you have hit upon so many things that that we just feel so strongly about, you know, critical thinking and encouraging students through our own excitement and enthusiasm um, for topics, for research, for subject matters, you know, to get excited and and learn about things, which is more than just Googling something, right, and coming up with one answer, um, <laughs> and, you know, and to have complicated ideas. And sometimes what we see when you do just Google something, that one answer is going to be A, incorrect, and B, packaged really badly. My small contribution is to try and get people who teach people, because I certainly will never have the same reach as one high school teacher in my lifetime of talking, you know, much less you know, multiple high school teachers uh, with all the multiple classes that they're going through. And hopefully we can get that, you know, to get this sort of critical thinking within the context of science. Because again, there is a fundamental difference between, you know, there, you can have different conflicting opinions about how society should be structured and so on and so forth. None of them is one more valid than the other. You just should know why you're picking one or the other. So the, for the science part of it, you can certainly say, okay, think about these things. The, the, the value judgments are what you, your humanity brings to it. Uh, and you can have different opinions of how much to fund NASA, how much to fund various departments and how much government should do. All of those are value judgments that there's no scientifically de determined answer. But the process of the building blocks of where you eventually get to those value judgments is the critical thing that I think we, we have to try to address. And it's not a trivial issue. All right. So let's end our interview with a lightning round. You ready? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, first question, what was your thought when the government came out and said, there's UFOs and we don't know what they are? Oh, no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, next lightning round question. Uh, in your mind, what was the most exciting scientific breakthrough of the last decade? Uh, the LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, detecting, you know, literally shifts in the waves in the space-time continuum coming to us from black holes merging. Okay. Uh, question, lightning round question number three. Did you see the movie Interstellar and what do you think of Kip Thorne's work working with them to get black holes on the big screen? Oh, loved, loved, loved it. Uh, the black hole images, the movie was good, but the best part of it was there's a line that says, we used to be explorers. And somehow I, w I wanted to get back to that. I want, and I think hopefully we're getting back to that. We'll end with our last lightning round question. So we asked you, in your mind, what's the biggest scientific breakthrough of the last decade? What do you think we're on the brink of in the next decade that really animates you and really excites you? I really think... Uh, with the observatories coming online, we're uh, going to understand potentially, you know, planets around other stars a lot better. Not necessarily discover life on them, but we're getting a lot more interesting results. And hopefully, you know, just what does the planet around another star's atmosphere, something that's Earth-like, look like? And I think we'll get that. Whether there'll be, you know, any signature of life, that's a toss-up. But oh my God, that's the one thing that I'm really looking forward to. Ferugian Gorgian, thank you so much for joining us. This was this was so 
fantastic. I really enjoyed myself and learned a ton in the process. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I, I really enjoyed talking with you, and I'm always happy to talk about space and NASA and things about you know the world we live in. This is this is this is not just out there. This is all of the things that we live with together every day. Thank you. All right, we're going to keep this fantastic science episode going. Up next, we're going to speak with Carl Zimmer, an award-winning New York Times columnist and the author of 14 books about science, including his newest, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Carl Zimmer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I think we'd like to begin fairly broadly. If you could set the stage of what America was thinking about nuclear, the nuclear threat and nuclear power in mid-century America, and then work us into Castle Bravo. Well, uh, the United States had... uh, deployed atomic weapons for the first time at the end of World War II, um, arguing that that was necessary to end the war, but um, it it seems more like it was a way to uh, demonstrate their strength um, to show that the United States was not just a nuclear superpower, but the nuclear superpower, the only country in the world with, uh, with the capacity to cause the kind of destruction that only nuclear weapons can deliver. Um, After the war ended, uh, the United States continued to do more research to improve uh, uh, these weapons to make them more powerful. Uh, Other countries, especially the Soviet Union, started doing research of their own. And in the years that followed, they shifted from um, the A-bomb, an atomic bomb, to the hydrogen bombs, which were uh, using a different kind of nuclear physics, different materials, and delivering a much bigger explosion. But no one quite knew how big. Uh, They started testing these um, first just testing them on the ground, exploding them. But uh, eventually, um, the United States had uh, hydrogen bombs that they were developing that could be delivered out of a plane. And so now they wanted to do just that. They wanted to uh, basically find a place uh, where they could dump an H-bomb and set it off and see what happened. So, you know, you mentioned um, World War II and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and you mentioned not just the sort of practical importance of ending the war, but also the symbolic importance of saying this is going to be something that's going to deter folks in the future. Do the tests serve that purpose as well? I know the tests are in part to see how these things work and to see how these new different stages of thermonuclear devices work and, and on all those sorts of things and to collect data. But is part of the testing also that kind of deterrence? Well, I mean, they, they were keeping these tests pretty secret. Um, you know, th- these were not things that they were uh, showing off. Uh, and so, you know, um, 
it's not as if they they were simply setting off bombs just to show the world how big their bombs were. Um, you know, it, it really was you know trying to to develop uh, these these weapons um, to to actually make them work as they wanted them to, which was, in other words, to destroy huge numbers of people and vast areas uh, of, uh, of civilization. I mean, that's what they wanted. Um, of course, you know, in the 1950s, you know, the uh, the idea in terms of international security was that, well, of course, we would never use them um, just because people know we have them. Um, no one will threaten us. So, so we will have peace through the development of the most powerful weapons humanity has ever seen. Can you tell us how you came upon this story? Well, you know, I certainly was aware uh, of, you know, the, the nuclear weapons age. Um, you know, I was born in 1966. So I have to say that, you know, when I was a kid, um, I did not grow up with, uh, that whole experience of actually thinking that, uh, you know, a, a nuclear weapon might land on you any moment. Um, and so it was pretty scary to hear from my parents about what it was like for them to have to hide under desks and so on. And Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. Paul and Patty know this. No matter where they go or what they do, they always try to remember what to do if the atom bomb explodes right then. It's a bomb, duck and cover. Sundays, holidays, vacation time, we must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. Duck and cover. That's the first thing to do. Duck and cover. First, you duck. And then, you cover. You duck and cover tight. Duck and cover under the table. It's a bomb. Duck and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You. And you. And you. And you. Duck and cover. You know, I got particularly interested in this era of, of nuclear weapon testing uh, through a very sort of indirect way. Um, so I write about science, I write about biology and medicine. And again and again, I would uh, come across these fascinating studies where scientists would learn something very interesting. Um, they would learn about, uh, you know, how our bodies develop over our lifetime, for example, by looking at different kinds of carbon atoms in our bodies. Um, and there was the regular carbon in our bodies. And then there was something that was sometimes called bomb carbon. Uh, and, you know, again and again, you would find out about uh, bomb carbon being used to uh, track the growth of trees or to look at how the ocean circulates. And uh, it turns out that this was a special form of carbon that it was actually created through these gigantic uh, nuclear weapons tests and has been floating around in the, in the atmosphere ever since. Now, in the article that we reference, uh, you mentioned driving to Cape Cod to see the cross-section of a, a very old, I think 150-year-old beech tree and being able to trace the bomb spike um, and sort of the, the existence of this radiocarbon in the atmosphere 
over time. Can you can you tell that story to our listeners? Yeah, I I, uh, I live in Connecticut, and it turned out that uh, that this uh, uh, facility in uh, Woods Hole, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, um, they study. Uh, bomb carbon and all sorts of different things. They have these uh, incredibly sophisticated devices for um, picking out the carbon in a sample and then counting the individual atoms uh, and essentially weighing them. Um, and so, uh, you know, regular uh, carbon is, is uh, called carbon-12. Um, and then there's this other kind of carbon produced in bombs. It's called carbon-14. It's a little bit heavier. And uh, so uh, there was this tree that was growing in Woods Hole, um, a big, beautiful beech tree. Um, and unfortunately, um, a few years back, um, it started to suffer from uh, bark disease, um, started to rot, and they decided they had to take it down. Um, and the scientists uh, at uh, the Institute in Woods Hole, you know, they were sad like everyone else to see this beautiful tree go down, but they said, this is an opportunity. Uh, and, uh, you know, a scientist there named Mary Gaylord, she really um, uh, pushed to get a big piece of the tree. I mean, basically, they cut out a giant slab from the trunk and gave it to her. Uh, just a huge piece of wood. Um, and it has these beautiful rings all laid out over the past 150 years. And so... Um, she and her team would would scoop out tiny little bits of wood from some of the rings and measure the carbon in them. And since you can use uh, you know the rings to to year by year to 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 tell time, um, they could know exactly when that wood formed. And you can actually see that um, year after year after year. The, the tree just has this totally or, ordinary carbon. Um, and then right after these big nuclear tests started, um, immediately it starts to take have a lot more carbon-14 in it, just a huge amount. It almost doubles. Uh, and then after nuclear uh, weapons testing stopped above ground um, in the early 1960s, you can see in the rings, the, the level of carbon-14 drops because the tree is breathing in carbon dioxide and it's just taking in whatever's there and turning it into wood. And year after year, there was less carbon-14 in the atmosphere because the tests had stopped and we, were stopped, we stopped making carbon-14. And so it was going back towards uh, the, the natural levels. That's such a bizarre story that you could... Of all the ways that you could date something, you could say how much bomb carbon <laughs> is in this particular thing. So let's yeah, let's let's uh, talk about Castle Bravo itself, and then we'll we'll move beyond that and start talking about the international reaction and and um, and some other things. But so um, so how how do we get here to this particular bomb? What's is there a succession in terms of trying to build a more powerful bomb, and then? Uh, it ends up being very, very powerful and more powerful than they thought. And that has all sorts of problems. So walk us through some of that. Right. So for this particular uh, uh, project, um, the U.S. government had developed a hydrogen bomb um, 
which they suspected would be much more powerful than uh, previous bombs, and was also something that you could drop out of a plane. So um, this 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 would be the kind of hydrogen bomb that they would actually use in in nuclear war, uh, and. So they they picked out a, a place in the Pacific where uh, they would drop it, um, and then they wanted to um, they wanted to observe it, and and so they um, so they they sent off uh, someone named John Clark to oversee this, and he was uh, he went to uh, what's called Bikini Atoll, this very delicate little island, really just a sort of a chain of, of coral reefs. In a, in a ring shape, um, and he he and his team, um, you know, they uh, they they set up the bomb at one end of the island. So uh, so the bomb is set up um, on on a tiny little island in a little shed, basically, and it's 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 rigged up so that it can be detonated remotely, uh, and then John Clark. And his team go to uh, 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 twenty miles away uh, at, at the other end of the island, um, where they are just sitting in a little blockhouse um, where they think they'll be fine. <laughs> and there's a navy ship uh, out in the water, some distance away. Um, and you know, then on uh, March first, nineteen fifty-four. Uh, Clark gives the command and they set it off. Um, and it turned out to be way more powerful than anyone thought. Um, it is kind of amazing that it did not just destroy their blockhouse completely. Um, they, 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 but, you know, but it, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a huge explosion, um, you know, and they were, you know, hiding in their blockouts for hours um, after the shockwave passed, um, just waiting to, to to figure out what was going on. Um, when they went outside, you know, and they saw this towering mushroom cloud, um, there was a huge amount of radioactivity they were detecting, which again was not what they were expecting. Um, they thought the winds were going to blow in a different direction. So you have the combination of this huge explosion and the wind's blowing the wrong way. And so they, they run inside. Um, they're, they're terrified that they're going to get um, killed by, you know, uh, by the radiation. Eventually, um, the Navy ship sends out a helicopter to rescue them. Um, they actually threw on bed sheets because they thought that that would protect them from the fallout coming down. <laughs> Uh, and they, so they run out in bed sheets uh, and jump in their Jeep and then drive, you know, the half mile to the helicopter pad. They get on the helicopter and it takes off. Um, you know, Clark lived to be uh, into his 90s. <laughs> you know, he was he, he was fine, amazingly, but it was a very, very dangerous situation. Um, and um and in fact, you know, uh, other people were were not so lucky. Um, the the fallout then spread, and uh, there was a Japanese fishing boat that uh, got exposed to the fallout. Um, there was uh, a, an island where uh, nearby where people were exposed as well to um, you know near near lethal amounts of fallout, uh, and. 
So eventually, uh, you know, the news about that Japanese fishing boat um, came out. You know, they they were they were back in Japan, and the Japanese government was talking about what had happened, and this really shocked people um, because uh, I don't think people really recognized the the scale of what was happening with nuclear weapons testing. You know, these bombs were getting so big. And were, you know, not just something that people would use, you know, to to bomb a particular city. This was something that was going to poison people over vast uh, expanses. Uh, and so, um, you know, Castle Bravo uh, it, itself, it uh, it's had this paradoxical effect. On the one hand, you know, the Russians looked at that and said, oh, we need to get our act together and make bigger bombs. So they started making bigger bombs and the United States started making bigger bombs. But meanwhile, Castle Bravo had actually, you know, really spurred um, the anti-nuclear movement. Um, you know, people just felt like this this is completely out of control and, and unacceptable. Uh, and so, you know, eventually in the, in the early 60s, um, you know, the... The superpowers agreed to um, to stop doing these kinds of above ground nuclear tests. As as somebody you you write a lot about science, um, and as somebody who does this kind of work, and I understand that science in 1954 is very different from uh, that of today, and protocols are different, and we've learned certainly a lot of lessons from these things. But as you read about some of the hubris and some of the mistakes. Um, I mean, uh, they didn't understand the properties of lithium-7, right? They thought that it was inert, and it ends up making this thing 2.5, I think you said, times more powerful than it should have been. Uh, they have somebody on the in the actual atoll 20 miles away, uh, despite the fact that the fallout was going to be impacting people far beyond that. Um, does that kind of hubris, that kind of miscalculation? Do, the, do these things shock you when you read them? I mean, what's your reaction as, as a science writer when you see these kinds of um, lapses in judgment, hubris, whatever you want to call them? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it, is a, it is a very strange thing to, to read about and to explore. Um, you know, in a, in a way, um, you know, it's, it's in a strange way, it's a, it's a testament to the power of science. I mean, that here were these scientists who were figuring out how to build things that could basically unlock the energy, uh, the, the, the way that energy is produced in the sun uh, on Earth. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of a Promethean situation where, um, you know, we, we, we were not really... Um, might not have been really ready to, to 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 use that power wisely. I mean, we still have nuclear weapons on the planet that could annihilate the whole world population many times over. So, you know, in a way, the nuclear era is not over uh, by by any means. Um, and you know, this this sort of rational science was, uh, you know, not really being motivated by, um, you know, the sort of uh, humanitarian goals that people often claim that science is for. I mean, this was, uh, you know, th this was, you know, initially, uh, you know, the people who were at the Manhattan Project, you know, they, they really felt that they were saving the world for democracy by destroying Nazi Germany. Like that was the goal, you know, and, and, and lots of people signed up for that. 
Um, but you know, after afterwards, um, you know, a lot of them became um, activists opposed to uh, nuclear proliferation because they just felt like, well, this isn't really what we signed up for. This is just an endless arms race um, that cannot end well. Um, and, and so um, it's 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 very striking to 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 read about you know these these very good scientists. Uh, uh, doing these experiments uh, with these really shocking uh, surprises. I mean, you know, one thing to bear in mind is that <clears throat> the first, um, you know, det- test des- detonation of an atomic bomb the, at the Trinity site um, in World War II, uh, you know, this was in the United States, um, you know, like the physicists weren't entirely sure what was going to happen. Like either the bomb would explode as they had predicted, the bomb wouldn't explode at all, or maybe there would be some sort of bizarre, you know, runaway reaction in the atmosphere and like we'd all be annihilated. They weren't entirely sure, but they decided it was worth (laughs) worth the risk. Uh, so, you know, we, we have been in this, this age of, of, uh, astonishing power and, and great risks, uh, ever since really. It's truly unbelievable and tragic to think that the U S federal government would allow this test to occur without really knowing how the bomb worked, just how powerful it was and, and what the implications and consequences would be. I mean, you think it's not just this um, this Japanese fishing boat that was hit with radiation, but there were also inhabited islands where this this test spread cancer and disease um, and birth defects. I mean, um, just tragic and and really unbelievable. I'd like to ask you about the challenges of writing about science because I'm sure they are multifaceted. I mean, first of all, you're writing for an audience that may not have a deep understanding of the material. And you're also trying to make complicated material that is probably difficult, um, very interesting. And um, some of it is uh, very worrisome. Um, And so you have to keep up this um, drumbeat of concern on a fairly consistent basis. So how do you how do you take the challenges of today and turn them into the interesting writing pieces that you do? Um well, uh, you know, I I, I think that uh, it's important to remember that even uh though you know, we're not all experts on say, you know, nuclear weapons or bomb carbon or or Paleoanthropology. I mean, we're we're all pretty curious, and and there is actually a, a big appetite for uh, writing a, a, and communication about science. People people find it really interesting. Uh, they they it's it's you it's it's important to them, and you know it's just it's just a matter of writing about it for the vast majority of people who do not you know have some advanced degree in that particular topic. Um, you know, even scientists, if you go a step outside of their own specialty, you know, they're often just as clueless as the rest of us. Um, so, um, you know, so, so it, it's, 
for me, like working on science pieces is a, is a process of, of exploring and learning about something and then sharing that um, with readers, often in the form of stories, which, you know, people will find very uh, compelling. So if you can find a good story to tell about something important like global warming, um, you know, people are going to carry along with you. Um, it doesn't feel like, you know, just a, a, a boring lecture, uh, you know, with a bunch of PowerPoint slides that they're going to have to slog through. That's what Allie and I are. I was going to say, hey, that feels very personal, <laughs> Carl. And I'm not really sure what you're trying to say about our teaching style, but. I, I haven't been in your classes. I'm sure, they're, I'm sure they're, they're charming and filled with lots of great narratives, right? Well, it's a lot of anecdotes, a lot of stories. Yes. Many, many, many stories. Yes. I mean, the. The trick there is that the trick there is that you know you also always have to remember that stories are not data um, that you know and, and that um, you know those stories you're telling have you have to be careful to find the stories that really let you um, communicate what the science is telling us uh, and 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 not just pick out a story because it's because it's cool and then end up drawing the wrong conclusion from it by overgeneralizing it. Carl, you, um, you talk about, you know, writing daily or, or weekly and, and having to sort of stay up to date with the science and everything. And it, it makes me think about, um, I mean, a lot of your work recently has been about the, the pandemic, but it makes me think about a book you wrote. Uh, your fr the first edition was 2012 called uh, planet of viruses. And I, I'm first going to give you a chance just to make your pitch, you know, big take home messages from the book and we'll tell everyone to go out and buy it. It's in its third edition now. Uh, but I'm particularly interested to hear you talk about this as somebody who wrote that book nine years ago. And just, I want to, I want you to put us inside of your headspace as the pandemic was ripping across the world and entering our shores. And we were seeing those New York times maps get redder and redder and redder. What did the author of planet of viruses <laughs> have to say have what, what were you thinking about that as it was happening and why didn't we see you holding the book up going i told you so i told the you end so is near. the end is near Hello. <laughs> you should have bought it when you could yeah well you know nobody nobody likes the i told you so guy um although in your book i think it does say we should expect this in the future but go ahead yeah well i so so just a bit about the book um so actually i uh I was approached by a scientist uh, named Judy Diamond at University of Nebraska who um, was working on an educational project about viruses. Um, and it was going to have all sorts of materials, mainly um, intended for high school students. And she wondered if I would uh, get involved, you know, maybe write a series of short essays, uh, each one on a particular virus. And um, that sort of, you know, evolved into um, a, a little book. I mean, I, when I was finished, I picked out 12 viruses, um, 12 essays, and each one there was a lesson about viruses in general. Uh, you know, one of the lessons is uh, that viruses are by far the most uh, abundant living thing on earth. Um, if you counted up all the viruses, it would be a number with a one and then 31 zeros after that. Um, so uh, there's a lot of viruses on earth. Um, not only that, but most 
most of the genetic diversity of life is in viruses. Um, viruses are incredibly diverse, genetically speaking. Um, they're a huge engine of evolution uh, for their hosts. Um, they, they move genes around between different species. Viruses are amazing. Uh, so I, I ended up uh, putting together this, this book, um, which I call The Planet of Viruses, um, very short just a little over a hundred pages long. Um, but it was really satisfying to, to, to introduce uh, readers to uh, the, the, the virus world, uh, the planet of viruses that we live on. Uh, and in, in one of those uh, uh, chapters, um, I was writing about um, coronaviruses. Um, the, so there was um you know, in, you know, around 2010, 2011, you know, there was a big concern about a coronavirus that had emerged in 2002, I believe, um, that caused SARS. And this was a very deadly respiratory disease. Um, and it sort of came out of the blue. And it, uh, fortunately, if you just um, isolate people who are showing symptoms, uh, they don't spread it to other people. And um, we stopped SARS in its tracks. Ever since, no one has gotten SARS. It's gone, as far as we can tell. Uh, and, you know, uh, sadly, uh, something around 800 people died, but it could have been way, way worse. Um, and it, it's gone. But, you know, I, I was writing and saying, like, well, you know, don't get smug because, you know, all the scientists who study these sorts of things are telling us and have been telling us for years that there's going to be something else. Uh, and, you know, maybe it'll be a coronavirus. It might be something else, something related to Ebola virus or something like that. Um, but something will come. So we need to be ready. We need to get ready. We need to prepare ourselves better for this. And we have, need to understand the causes of this. And so I can, I can just stop you there. Everybody read your book. We learned our lesson and interview over, or is there more to the story? Well, you know, with, <laughs> so uh, the, this, this, the grim irony of all of this is that um, in 2015, uh, my publisher, University of Chicago Press, uh, came to me because there was this outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. It was huge. It was tremendous. It was way beyond anything we had seen before with Ebola. It was terrifying. And, uh, and you know, we, we, you know 11,000 or so people died. And the publisher was like, well, we can't just, just keep selling this book, you know, without that because people are going to wonder about that. That's, you know, let's, let's, let's revise that chapter and talk about Ebola. And I was like, okay. So I ended up revising the whole book around that for the second edition. But again, the point was like, here's another one of these viruses. It's hanging around in animals and it's, it's suddenly spilled over. And it was, you know, this should be a warning to us that it used to be that Ebola was just limited to remote villages and farming communities it got into these, these uh, you know, the denser populations in West Africa, got into cities, and it was a terror. It was, it was terrible. And as the world gets more urbanized, we are running this risk. So, second edition comes out. <laughs> and, yeah. So, in, you know, in January 2020, um, I start 
to read about this uh, new kind of pneumonia in Wuhan. Uh, and they say it's a coronavirus. And I think back to I think back to SARS in China in 2002. Also, there was another coronavirus um, a few years ago uh, that arose probably in Saudi Arabia through bats and camels, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, MERS. So we had a track record with coronaviruses in particular. We knew that coronaviruses were trouble. You know, sadly, um, I was not at all surprised. And um, uh, and if, what I was surprised by, I should say, is just how it just kind of followed the playbook. You know, this is, it just did what people warned would happen. And here we are. Um, I would like to know your thoughts about the unfortunate intersection of politics and science. And as you were saying that the coronavirus, you know, moved in this very predictable way, um, what was I, I'm sure rather unpredictable was our response to it, like the national response to it should have been as predictable if the virus moved so predictably. But politically, uh, forces moved our response differently. Could you discuss that a little bit? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think that it's uh, a, a very striking to compare what happened in the United States to what happened in South Korea. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, um, because the first case uh, of COVID-19 in the United States and in South Korea, there was the same day. So, you know, we, we both, we both got into the pandemic at the same time. Um, and the response was, was strikingly different. Um, so in South Korea, they had had, uh, the experience with SARS, um, you know, there there were some SARS cases in South Korea. Um, they also had MERS uh, strike them. Um, there was a hospital outbreak um, that they contended with, and so they were taking uh, the threat of pandemics, particularly of coronaviruses, respiratory diseases, very very seriously. So they had things set up. Uh, they, you know. Um, they had um, the ability to get testing in place very quickly. They had um, epidemiologists, contact tracers ready in place. Um, you know, th they had mask factories ready to go. They they had uh, you know protective uh, gear for for healthcare workers ready, um, and so that all just went into uh, action um, right away. Um, and, you know, I mean, South Korea is a, is a democracy, like, you know, so you can't say, oh, yeah, well, that's just like an authoritarian state, they do whatever they want. South Korea is a democracy that faced down a pandemic quickly, and in a science based way. Um, we, on the other hand, um, you know, we had an administration that at first was uh, assuring us uh, that this was no big deal, and that it was just going to go away. Uh, we, it, on top of the politics, though, um, we definitely had a lot of systemic problems with public health. So, you know, the Centers for Disease Control 
should have immediately come up with a powerful, accurate test, but they didn't. They messed up and they didn't really do anything to fix it for literally months. So we had these universities uh, who were saying like, we can make you a test like right now, Mm -hmm. but they weren't being allowed to do so because of the way the regulations were set up. Um, So that was a huge failing. Um, So testing did not go into place as it should have. And, you know, public health more broadly is, is incredibly underfunded. So, you know, the idea of being able to track people effectively and so on, we didn't employ that either. So it was a failure on on many different levels, unfortunately, in the United States, and we paid with a horrible loss of, of life. Um, you know, it's great that we have vaccines now, um, but you know, we we should have done a lot more to to keep people from dying before those vaccines became available. Are you hopeful or pessimistic? And I'll I'll tip you off to you probably can already guess it that I'm pessimistic. I fear that we're moving in divergent paths in this country, that our polarization takes so many forms. And one of them is polarization of respect for trust of science. And so I wonder as somebody who's written about viruses, somebody who writes about science, you know, we're hitting a vaccine wall now where those folks that want to get vaccinated have been vaccinated and we're kind of running out of like there's no more demand, right? Um, you've written about viruses that we thought we had gotten rid of, right? And now all of a sudden we have a movement saying, no, let's let's stop taking the stuff that kept them at bay, right? I mean, do you worry about that kind of divergence or do you feel like, no, this is just a temporary cleavage and respect for science will be restored? What's your, what's your hope for the future on that? Um, no, I'm, I'm worried. Um, I, I'm not fatalistic about it, but, um, I think that, um, I think too many people are getting what they think is information about science from, from Facebook or others, other dubious sources. And they're, they're not getting it, you know, in, in their high school classrooms. They're not, they're not getting it from, you know, reliable sources. And, uh, and so then it, uh, then, then, you know, the misinformation then either, um, uh, strengthens people's, uh, own biases or feeds into, you know, conspiracy theories so that people will, you know, come up with these elaborate explanations for why the earth is flat. I mean, you can go on YouTube and find find that all over the place. And so, you know, m- maybe nobody gets killed because they think the earth is flat, but um, people do get killed if um, they're not going to um, recognize how modern medicine works, um, you know, like that. And, and we're, we are moving more and more in that direction. I think what concerns me most of all is that there are are the people who um, recognize what's happening and then exploit it, either for political gain or for financial gain. Um, I think Facebook could be doing far, far more. YouTube could be doing far, far more to um, to be helping. Um, rather than um, just allowing nonsense to, to spread around. But, you know, it would 
it would cost money. It would, it would slow things down. They don't want to get involved. And so we just have this, this really dysfunctional uh, flow of information. All right, well, we'll lighten up a little bit here. <laughs> did, did, I, did I read correctly on your website that you have a species of tapeworm named after you? That oh, I got it. I got to hear this story. That's so cool. <laughs> well, and gross. <laughs> well, um, you know, uh, it, it was, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I, I wrote a book about parasites uh, uh, 20 years ago now called uh, Parasite Rex. And um, basically, it was, uh, you know, extolling the, the glories of parasites and, and uh, trying to rehabilitate their reputation. And uh, because parasites do amazing things, they control the behaviors of their hosts, they're able to evade complex immune systems, uh, they do all sorts of stunning things. So, um, so uh, among the people who read the book was um, a college student named Carrie Filer, who was kind of astonished that people actually studied things like tapeworms for a living. So she went to graduate school at the University of Connecticut and uh, she was given um, a batch of tapeworms that had been uh, taken out of a, a, a stingray, uh, I believe in the Pacific. Um, and these seemed to be tapeworms that no one had seen before. And so she went through the process of describing them each as a new species. So I got one uh, in, in <laughs> thanks for writing Parasite Rex. <laughs> That's awesome. I hope someday to have a fungus or something else named after me. There are a lot of species. Um, you know, I mean, do viruses alone, we're going we're gonna to need a lot of names. Yeah. Lawrence Eppard's available. Go ahead, Allie. Well, no, I actually have a follow-up question to the, to the tapeworm. Do you have a drawing of it, you know, framed that says the Carl Zimmer tapeworm or... Ooh, that's a present we should give him for coming on the show. <laughs> I know, really. I, I, I do have a photograph of it. Yeah, it's a, a Canthobothrium zimmeri. And it's, you know, it's, it's, people think of tapeworms as being like 20 feet long. This one's pretty tiny, but it, it's a, it's a handsome little tapeworm, I will say. Is it a selfie with it? Like on a selfie stick, like you and the tapeworm together or? <laughs> no, no, this is, this is just, you know, under a microscope. Uh, <laughs> and, and does it, will it do some damage? I mean, if you, how do you, what does it? We want to know, can we get thin if we were to ingest this tapeworm? Um, no, you'd, <laughs> you'd probably get really, uh, you'd probably get like a really nasty reaction. It would be eating huh. like some bad sushi and, and uh, having having some worm crawl around. Or either that or the worm would die. It's not, the tapeworm is not adapted to humans. So, gotcha. uh, but, you know, for the fish, it's fine. You know, like fish just swim around with tons of tapeworms and other parasites inside of them. Most animals are pretty uh, rife with parasites. It's, it's actually more of a, of a truce that they've reached rather than all out war. Carl Zimmer, thank you so much for joining us today. This was just fantastic. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, 
We'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.